Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, which is an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. My name is Sadia. I'm Remy. And I'm Veronica. Today we're going to be chatting about Western Canada. We're going to focus in on some of what's been happening in British Columbia and Alberta. We'll talk about Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney, the public education system, and Indigenous settler relations. Our discussion will move between personal experiences and political and social commentary in a relatively free-flowing way. Throughout the discussion, we'll be comparing and contrasting Western Canada with Ontario. Since our podcast is based in Toronto, maybe we could start by chatting about what Torontonians and people in Ontario more generally think of when they imagine Western Canada. Remy, you're from BC and Veronica is from Alberta. I have lived in Toronto for the past 21 years, so I consider that my city. Um, So you both have been living in Toronto for a few years now. Um, When you tell people you're from the West, what sorts of reactions do you usually get Well, um, I think one of the first thing Vancouver is, of course, people talk about the weather, but um, I'm not sure how, you know, relevant that is to politics, but I I was kind of curious about what people think about BC in terms of like, do people think it's sort of left wing or hippie or all this kind of stuff is what, uh, like one of the kind of the first things that you hear. So um, I definitely think of hippie when I think of BC. Yeah. I mean, but like, do people think it's like left wing, this kind of stuff or? I guess like wishy-washy kind of left wing. Not yeah, like, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, like nature. What do they call it? Um, potentially fiscally conservative, but then socially very liberal. Mm. And the focus is more about like the lifestyle rather than hard economic policies or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. But I think being from Alberta, we obviously have also a different understanding of BC and BC people. Um, oh yeah, I feel do, like do, there's a lot do you guys more overlap. Years? Not really, actually. Um, I think we're more inclined to joke about maybe the stereotype, but I don't know a person from Alberta who doesn't often visit BC. There's a lot of crossover between the provinces that I've noticed. And because we share the the mountains, there's just a lot of overlap, I find. And So what are the stereotypes in Alberta of BCers? Generally the same. It's that same kind of hippie stereotype. But I think mostly it's in jest, just because we're a lot closer and there's more overlap. Yeah, I feel like I have way more stereotypes of Alberta than I, would I do imagine. BC. Yeah. In my mind, Alberta is basically the Texas of Canada, mm-hmm. and which is probably a common Absolutely. Um, how accurate would you say that? I mean, I don't know if you've been to Texas, but... I have well. not been to Texas. Um, what's interesting is um, Southern Alberta actually had significant immigration of ranchers from Texas and I think around the turn of the century and we also have a lot of people who came up from Utah um, to begin irrigation of southern Alberta and back in the day there was um, complaints from the other settlers about that and stuff but um, I've heard that my whole life um, that we're the Texas sometimes I would hear Albertans proudly saying we're like the Texas Mm. Um, then I have Um, other experiences where Albertans are like, oh yeah, I hate that stereotype. It's just not accurate, but that's what everyone thinks of us as. But coming here, anytime I would say I'm from Alberta, most often people would say, oh yeah, it's so conservative there. It seems like it's akin to the Republicans Mm. in the United States. But what I have noticed is the culture of Alberta 
I think the conservatism is not based on, I think, what we, we would define as genuine conservative hmm. ideology or beliefs, but Albertans growing up believing that that was their best option and that that's what's going to get them what they want and what they need. So they've adopted this identity that really doesn't actually correlate with their preferences and their beliefs. Mm. Um, Alberta conservatism, I've always noted, seemed different from Ontarian conservatism in that Albertans always frame themselves as being anti-government, anti-centralism, mm. non-interference um, for some things, but then they still think if the government is there, they should be giving them jobs and they should be giving them income security, things like that. In Ontario, um, from personal interactions that I've had with people who are more conservative, they seem to want more of our, like a genuine conservative, very fiscally conservative agenda. They want also then the kind of neoliberal social control mm. kind of things. So Albertans, I think, they're more populist. They always have been more populist. Um, when we had the UFA. Um, What's the UFA? Oh, sorry. The United Farmers of Alberta. Mm. That was our political party in the 20s, 30s. And that was like a syndicalist cooperative that was against the idea of kind of established political parties. Mm. And they wanted to have farmers in control of their own land and resources and lives. The UFA was very left-leaning, and then we had another kind of populist movement called Social Credit, and that lasted from like 35 till 1971, when mm. the Conservatives replaced them. And they were also extremely populist. Again, the narrative of um, Alberta standing on its own, the regular people having their own regular leader in power. And so we've just kind of maintained this populism over a century, basically. But which is so interesting because, you know, when... I guess I am very Ontario-centric in my thinking, um, but I sort of assume that because Ontario is sort of the biggest province and the most sort of ethnic diversity and such, that it would also have a general sort of like progressivism in the po in politics, which is completely untrue. Uh, and in fact, like when I was looking at the, um, the trajectory of general elections in Ontario versus uh, Alberta, um, Ontario has had much more solid streaks of conservatives in power for like the entirety of the 20th century, basically with like with small little blips of like the NDP and then like more recently the liberals. Um, but yeah, in, in Alberta, it's been like much more populist, as you're saying, Veronica, mm -hmm. a lot more like experimentation. It seems like there's like other interesting stuff going on in a way that Ontario is actually not very interesting at all. Yeah, I think what's interesting too is... This kind of reveals the pattern of Alberta politics and, well, more specifically, Alberta elections that a lot of people don't really understand or recognize. So every Alberta election, with the exception of when we had a liberal appointed as our very first premier and he was gone really quick, um, it's been a span of the same. So we keep the same party in and then have a sudden landslide changeover. And then they last a longer period of time. And then we have another changeover and then that lasts an even longer period of time. So we had the UFA and then social credit. Then the conservatives get elected in 1971 and they stay in power until the NDP election. So the NDP election actually fit that same pattern. So it really wasn't actually too out there. So what's actually the pattern breaker is Jason Kenney's election and the election of the UCP party into parliament. UCP is? The United Conservative Party, which is the former PC party and the Wild Rose Party, um, which was our new party, I guess, in 
oh, when did they come about? Maybe 2012. And they were even more right wing. It's a really strange phenomenon how they, they're very libertarian, um, but they're also as a party, they were a mess of inconsistency and scandals and things. Um, and they recently then decided to join up with the conservatives, even though their existence was founded on not wanting to be a part of the main conservative party mm. because they were not happy with that party. So they broke off saying, we're the real representation of Alberta. We're the real conservatives. Now they're back together. And that got them elected, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, when you mentioned the sort of the NDP being like this fall of the conservatives, bringing NDP governments, part of this general trend of like the collapse of mm-hmm. of governments. But um, I think one of the things that maybe changed in this one was because there were like basically three parties. So I think, you know, the conservatives, the right, they accurately saw that their vote got split, right? The, I think the UCP, current UCP government, if you combine the the combined vote of Wild Rose and PC, it's, it's like barely higher. I think maybe only a few percentages more. So it seems like it really is just like the combined vote yeah. of those two parties, which, so the NDP seemed to have won based on like a vote splitting um, mm-hmm. between, even though they did, in all fairness to them, they did really increase their popular uh, support. And this time they didn't actually fall, like it's still pretty high, like their amount of uh, percentage yeah, of the votes of that they got this time. that they have is still yeah. significant. I wonder what people there think about Jason Kenney though, because like he was... We had some very prominent positions in Stephen Harper's government. Mm-hmm. It's really strange, um, and it's kind of the same with Harper. Um, Harper would always pass himself off as an Albertan because he attended UFC or something. Um, but he's, of course, born in Toronto. And the Jason Kenny one is even weirder because he has even less of a connection, seemingly, to Alberta. And there was actually a scandal just before the election where it was revealed that he was faking his Alberta residence. (laughs) Um, He'd listed his mother's retirement home as his permanent address, but she was in a retirement home. There was no space for him. And he, the record show was barely in Calgary that whole time. He was still living in Ontario, um, where he's from, where he did most of his work. And yet, even though that was revealed, the people who supported him still kind of maintained him as their conservative hero and he's the one that's going to save Alberta. Mm. So it's despite everything, despite even the usual antagonism towards the federal government and um, the elites and that he was still chosen. Um, So it's really paradoxical, but a lot of Alberta conservative ideas are paradoxical. I guess like one one aspect though is the like the the Harper Conservatives compared to previous Conservatives they really came out of like sort of like the Reform Canadian Alliance movement right and they basically took over the old Progressive Conservative Party so that you know Federal Conservative Party people you know saw it like Fortress Alberta as you know sort of what they called it right so I think even though despite like Harper and Kenny uh, despite you know not being like sort of native Albertans I think that maybe they they were seen as um, you know champions of like Alberta and conservatism they had become so ingrained within uh, the concept of Alberta politics, like on the mm-hmm. federal scene, but they were, you know, they were part of the whole, you know, it's like their guys in in Parliament, right? So, and he also he was a big big name, and they needed to unite the party, so it was kind of seen as, even though I don't, th- I'm not sure if his, um, you know, he kind of t- uh, branded himself as a person to unite the the parties, but was he readily adopted by you know the existing party structures, or was he kind of just, you know, parachuted in or? Well, Jason Kenney did kind of come out of nowhere. It, it was really weird because you didn't really hear a lot about him. And then suddenly, oh, Jason Kenney's going to be the UCP leader. And I really don't know much about what happened, but I know there is a bit of uh, bad blood because the UCP, 
uh, sorry, the Wild Rose leader had been hoping to be the leader of the UCP, uh, Brian John, and he was seemingly betrayed. Um, they just kind of got rid of him, swept him under the rug, though he was the one who had kind of been holding the Wild Rose together. Um, so that was a little weird. I wish I knew more about what was going on, but due to some kind of personal antagonisms, I just avoid all the Wild Rose stuff that I could be yeah. picking up on. So I missed some of that. But I do know that it did seem a little uncharacteristic or unexpected that Jason Kenney was kind of called up so quickly to lead this party versus some other possibilities that they could have gone with. Yeah. You know, it seems like sort of an odd thing for a, a federal politician, like a, that senior politician, just be parachuted in. Um, I think part of it was also this, maybe this trend as well in the federal conservatives. It seemed like after like the Harper loss to Trudeau, there was a sense in the conservatives of trying to potentially move on from that era. And also a lot of um, ministers kind of jumped ship, like you, um, you know, Jason Kenney, you know, go off to Alberta. Like the, maybe there was a sense that the future is not necessarily for your, you know, political career, not necessarily being the leader of the federal party anymore. Uh, maybe people saw that at the time Trudeau might have a few election wins in him. So, you know, you saw some people moving towards industry, some people moving towards other realms of politics. So this kind of sheer conservative leadership seems to be this kind of a different group of characters now in federal uh, conservative party as it was compared to the Harper era. I think, I mean, when I had heard that um, Jason Kenney was going to be leading the UCP in Alberta and then that he won, I think my sort of reaction was probably very typical of the reaction of like leftists in Toronto, which was like, of course, like that's exactly where Jason Kenney would end up. Like he was such a over the top kind of conservative when he was in Stephen Harper's government, like as the minister of citizenship and immigration and minister of multiculturalism and like other like really prominent portfolios, he would come up with like these very overtly like designed policies to just provoke a reaction. Like there was something like, what was it like uh, something against like barbaric cultural practices act yeah, or something? Hotline, right. yeah. Hotline, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah. So he's like, he made his mark that way. And so it was like, okay, this is for sure not the end of him with Stephen Harper, but like, okay. So in some ways, Veronica, what you're saying is that like, there is this trend of like populist leaders. And in mm -hmm. some way, I guess you could see that he would fit that brand in the mm -hmm. sense of like his rhetoric being kind of like over the top and like him more generally presenting himself that way. But also he's like a very established politician. Yeah. And so like this, there's some parallels to like Doug Ford maybe yeah. or to like others, but like in some, like, but they're it's limited. Still, yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting too. Um, I remember the first kind of things I saw of him were right before, um, I think right before the parties converged, he was making little videos. Um, it'd show him at like a gas station in the winter <laughs> and he would be complaining about carbon tax and how he's going to, he's going to stop carbon tax and Albertans won't have to pay it. And he was circulating little viral videos like that. And I think maybe that made him look a little more down to earth, mm. a more regular person um, than he obviously is. So it was crafted to be. So I yeah. think there is something of that. Um, carbon tax, of course, is also the probably another major factor into the election of the UCP instead of the NDP. Yeah. Um, one thing I've kind of wondered uh, as well as going into the election there was this idea of how, you know, now he was starting to speak that sort of right populist language. 
um, you know, that we'd seen like in Ontario with, with Ford and in Quebec and all this, you know, Trump and all this uh, kind of stuff. But sometimes I wonder where that was coming from, whether it's attempt to appeal to the wild rose base, uh, which probably would, which for sure would have voted for a UCP merged party anyway. So, you know, was it trying to like reconcile these differences to sort of make this merger go more smooth? Um, because it's sometimes it's a little bit, um, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical of how sort of good of a strategy it was because it probably wasn't necessary to win an election. And if anything, that might have turned people off because there is this, you know, there is the elements of Alberta where people do see themselves as, you know, like fiscally conservative, um, you know, they're like pro oil, pro industry, all this kind of stuff. But they are, you know, they do see themselves as, you know, more modern and, uh, you know, even Calgary, you know, see themselves multicultural, all this kind of stuff. So there did seem to be some people who normally would be very happy voting for conservative. Uh, they still voted conservative because they would never vote for the NDP, but they were a little bit like this kind of sort of, pop, you know, like right populist talk is, you know, maybe making them a little uncomfortable, <laughs> affecting their sensibilities. They they still voted conservative, but I wonder if that was, if that helped them in the, when it comes to actually winning seats or, you know, getting votes or if it might've hurt them or if there was part of something else, which is not necessarily about getting votes, but more about appealing to their base or appealing to the wild road ba- base or mm-hmm. something like that. Actually, what comes to mind is their stance on schooling and education, um, because they're very typically almost like um, evangelical Republican style when it comes to education. Um, there is controversy over a law that would require schools to report if students were joining GSAs or gay straight alliances. Mm. And a law to report that? Teachers would have to report yeah. to parents. Um, so any student that joined a Gay Straight Alliance, the teachers would be required to tell parents of that. Um, So so the NDP was very, very concerned about that. The policy mouthpieces would be like, oh, it's not actually that bad. We just think parents should be involved and that kind of stuff. And also their proposed curriculum changes, which were essentially erasing everything that the NDP was working on um, for education reform. Uh, So different curriculums and textbooks, things like that. That turned a lot of people who are normal conservative voters off um, because they were very concerned about their own children attending these kinds of schools. Because while they are more the fiscally conservative type, they do, yeah, as, as Remy said, they see themselves as being modern and mm. pro-science um, education, pro-generally like just socially minded. Mm-hmm. Like they don't want students being outed by teachers. They don't want these sorts of things. So those people were definitely rejecting this kind of this particular kind of conservatism that was coming out of the party. Yet it didn't seem to matter when it came to the election. And it does seem to indicate, as Remy was suggesting, that maybe they're really trying to pander to their wild rose base instead of trying to get more broad appeal. Mm -hmm. So they're really going hard at trying to get their core to be overly supportive of them. And they're willing to sacrifice gaining that broad support. Yeah, I guess with the GSA stuff, like, on the one hand, they haven't outright prohibited the GSAs, which I guess would go against the charter, so they can't really do that. But for them to like try to find this way to be like, oh, the mm-hmm. teachers would report it, like it's that seems like a very sort of socially conservative, like 
Republican mm-hmm. kind of style way yeah. of doing things. Yeah. And of course, Jason Kenney, when he was in San Francisco, um, he's very proud of the fact that he was a part of the legislation that ended up denying spousal visits to people dying of AIDS during the AIDS crisis. And he's been recorded on video talking about that accomplishment that he made. So there is something very, very socially conservative about his views. I remember the other thing I was going to say that uh, that apparently since 2013, Alberta had gotten rid of like standardized tests, like in grade three. Mm-hmm. And then now I guess the Jason Kennedy's government yeah, is trying wants to, bring, to bring those back, which is like something that in Ontario we've been stuck with since the 90s. And like it's not the conversation has never gotten to a point where it seems like we are about to get rid of standardized tests. So, yeah, I'm not sure how it is in other places, but in BC, it's been this weird thing where when I was in high school, there was standardized tests like provincial exams for grade 12. And then they added, I think, grade 10 and grade 12, but then they got rid of grade 12 and they only have 10. Like there's this weird push pull between what, you know, what is good, modern, you know, standardized tests, non-standardized tests. So it doesn't seem to be, I don't think there seems to be like a very consistent thing anywhere about, you know, how to move on, on sort of that front. So did you guys do standardized tests? Like, So in Ontario, we do it for grade three, grade six, grade nine, grade 10. How often did you guys do it? I did three, six, nine, and 12. Um, oh. But 12 was a part of like our, our actual finals. Mm. Um, so they just merged them. And same with grade nine. It was a part of your finals, but also it went to the province. And then, yeah, I did the three and the grade six one. And the three one, it's, it's quite laughable because you have the teacher teaching students how to fill in bubbles and <laughs> what even multiple choice is and things like that. But yeah, we did three, six, nine, and 12. Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't think we did a three. I don't remember anything like that, but you know, my memory might be foggy. I, I think there was something in grade six. I think I kind of briefly remember doing something. So maybe there was a standard exam, uh, but really the only one that mattered was the grade 12, like provincial exams. Mm-hmm. And that was, yeah, where it counted towards, I think like 30% or 40% of your final grade yeah, for a certain- I think that was at least similar um, to Yeah. And then afterwards, once I graduated, they added in a whole bunch of other ones. So I don't know even what the provincial exam scheme is right now. To be honest, most of what I remember being in Alberta's education system was a lot of curriculum changes and Mm. very often being told by our teachers, they're reviewing the curriculum. So this is a little bit different than last year. I have to figure out how to teach it, but we're going with this. So if you have any questions or issues... Um, feel free to write all over the the standardized test so that we can report it back um, to figure out what's best. And that happened so often in so many courses. They were always reviewing and changing the curriculum. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I guess all through the curriculum, through my schooling in Ontario, like I never remember it being so contingent or like, you know, that it's like in flux. It just seemed like, yeah, it was, it was down. I, I guess only recently in Ontario, like the sex ed curriculum stuff has been kind of on people's minds but did you guys get sex ed in I guess grade five or grade four whenever they started um we did ours in grade four and then I think we had it every subsequent year for just a brief period of time and it was either done as kind of a special side thing with school nurses or it was a part of like our gym um gym stuff and then I think we had more of it in high school but for some reason in my high school if you were in band you didn't have to take your health <laughs> course. So I didn't take that, but I think everyone else had to. Because those kids never have yeah, band no, kids, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, don't need to. Yeah, I yeah. think we actually had a lot of it. Um, 
And yeah, the only reason I didn't get my version in high school was because of that weird band rule. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think we, I don't remember having a health class in high school. We had so far, like the only time I remember we had sex ed was grade six, I think. And outside of that in high school, I don't, I don't think they had a health class component. There was like cooking and all that kind of stuff, but no health class as far as I remember. So one of the things I've heard from people is that in contrast to somewhere like Toronto, in like BC and Alberta, it's much more common for like public schools to have more indigenous students. Is that true from you guys' experiences? Were there like more indigenous students around in your school? I mean, I didn't go to school in Ontario, but from what I've heard from people, and even just population-wise, being anywhere in Alberta um, versus being in Ontario, just you encounter more indigenous people mm-hmm. for sure. We also then have, I would expect from what I've also heard, uh, more indigenous content in our education. Mm-hmm. So we start in elementary school learning about indigenous cultures and move up to talking about residential schools and middle school and that sort of thing. Yeah, I guess in our school, I guess we, like my high school, we had, I guess the area where I lived, we had, you know, fairly amount of um, indigenous students. I wouldn't really be able to say if that's something that's a general thing or more just particular to our area of Surrey. I'm not sure if that would apply to other areas of Surrey. But I guess, yeah, there's just much more, A, like I guess just more of indigenous population, but also my sense is that the reserves are closer to like... Yeah, I think so. In Ontario, it really does seem like reserves are far away from all the urban centres. And I remember talking with some people who are indigenous people who are camping out at uh, the legislature and they had come, some of them had come from very far away to do this protest camp out. Um, But in Alberta, reserves are all very close. Yeah, I think in in Ontario, it's, I guess more generally, indigenous people are more likely to be out of sight, out of mind. And although, you know, the last, uh, the liberal provincial government tried to like bring in some like indigenous content and such into the curriculum it's it's like i don't know it's, it doesn't seem to be like as much sort of embedded in it the way that it sounds like it is in um for you guys but yeah i mean i guess in bc it's like there's more also more of a presence of indigenous populations and reserves that like closer to big cities or no so i think where i'm from it's the sort of the greater vancouver area there's like the, like more of the relationship between you know center towns and the reserves would be more in, in the interior. Like I think if you start moving towards you know the Okanagan or things like that, so that would be a, that's like a different relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in like Surrey or Vancouver, this are it's like urban, um, it's like non non reserve. Mm-hmm. So and reserves are not are like necessarily around that area. So it's it's a there's a difference between those areas of BC and when you're talking about more the interior or the north. Um, Okay, that's interesting because, mm-hmm. I mean, but I guess like then the follow-up question would be like, to what extent is there, like are Indigenous people present in the culture and sort of self-imagination of like Alberta and BC? Because in Ontario, they don't really seem to be. Well, well, in BC, I can, in terms of sort of the, sort of the BC brand, if you want to call it that, there is always, you know, this push, especially in terms of like Haida, like Haida art, um, all this kind of stuff, you know, and I think, a lot of people are maybe sketch about how genuine a lot of this um, stuff is in BC. I think sort of the official narratives are, you know, where, you know, this is progressive. We've, you know, we've incorporated all these people into the mainstream. 
But I mean, if you look at, you know, in terms of like um, homeless rates or all this kind of stuff, it's really, it's the same kind of stuff you'd probably see anywhere else. But in terms of the, the BC's sort of imaginary, this, you know, sort of Haida, all this kind of stuff, um, I think it does figure uh, fairly prominent. If you see a lot of BC branding, you'll always, you know, you go and you buy a keychain or you buy anything, it'll, you know, you'll be sure to, they'll, to slap uh, something like that on there. Um yeah. So, I mean, there is this kind of sort of this corporate um, aspect to it as well. But on the other hand, um, people say, you know, it does create opportunities for like indigenous artists um, to sell a lot of their stuff. Mm. Um, so, of course, there's that aspect as well. Um, but Yeah, I guess I was struck by that when when I'd gone to Vancouver last year, like immediately at the airport, there's so much like indigenous imagery and such with totem poles and arts and crafts store and and on the one hand it's sort of like okay like this seems to be a very positive contrast to Ontario in the sense that it seems to be embraced that yes this is on indigenous land but I guess as you're saying with me that it's more like helping the brand rather than speaking to anything more uh, substantial about the nature of the relations between like indigenous communities there and the BC settler population. Yeah, I think for Alberta, I don't want to paint it as being great for Indigenous people because we have all the same issues and, you know, the foster care system, um, that's really noticeably harmful. Um, And I wouldn't even necessarily say the government is working to promote um, or help Indigenous communities or even necessarily sponsor Indigenous arts or anything. We had a controversy in Calgary a couple years ago where they were having a contest of which artist was going to create some public art, some very expensive public art. And there was a person from the Siksika Nation who wanted to submit, and then they were told their application was too late, so they didn't get a chance at that. And Calgary ended up hiring a New York-based artist of Italian descent to do these public sculptures, and then the artists claimed they were inspired by the Blackfoot culture Mm. and just made up a bunch of stuff about, you know, Native people care about the elements, and I've shown that in my art. And it was really awful. Um, A lot of Albertans are mostly complaining about the cost of the art. But then um, some people from Blackfoot Nation and also the Satina Nation, they were kind of struck by the awful coincidence that these structures actually looked like traditional funerary structures. So that was kind of a weird, ironic slap in the face. But I do think that just in day-to-day life, you encounter Indigenous people more, and they're more likely to be in your communities or alongside your communities. And there, of course, is predominant racism, especially in certain areas, and especially with the culture of oil camps and these man camps in the North Mm. and stuff. And that's a problem in BC as well, I know, in the North. Um, But, you know, growing up, you're more likely to have Indigenous classmates, and you just have regular, I guess, exposure to their culture and them as people and you're recognizing that yeah they're around and they were here before any of these settlers were and in toronto like unfortunately the only place in the city where one can expect to run into indigenous people is like certain parts of downtown like along spadina or like moss park areas that are associated with like addictions mental illness homelessness um but like, I mean, at least in my sense, maybe because there isn't like a sort of encounter with them as like regular people and in sort of regular spaces, at least in my sense, like there isn't the same kind of like anti-Indigenous uh, racism. There doesn't seem to be a category or categorization and a sort of imagination 
around which a racial narrative could be constructed. Um, I, I mean, you have the usual stuff from like, oh, they don't pay taxes or they're lazy or whatever, but it's like, it's very far away. Whereas like from what I hear about like small town out West, is that like, oh, those Indians or those natives or like other kind of like derogatory terms that it's it's much more prominent. Does that sound accurate? That there is like, like a, the anti-native or anti-indigenous racism, like there, there's something more developed about that there. I think in smaller towns, especially in rural areas in the West, for the white settler, the, the native is the only other that they're ever going to be exposed to. And a lot of times you have these really old antagonisms that have been inherited from your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-grandparents about, you know, that very original, like, we're settling this land and they're not doing anything, they should stay in their reserves, and that just gets trickled down into the younger generations. And um, that, I think, is definitely true. Whereas, yeah, in Toronto, you rarely ever do see an Indigenous person. And for people who have grown up in Toronto their whole lives, they wouldn't really make anything of it. Um, though I think in smaller towns in Ontario and more rural places of, of Ontario, you have the same dynamics as you do out West. I've definitely heard a lot of recent stories in rural parts of Ontario about violence against Indigenous people that was racially motivated and right. dynamics in these smaller towns as well. Yeah, I mean, I think in, you know, again, that would be, the, so the dynamic would change, let's say based if you're close to the interior and there's some place, you know, where like there's like reserves very close. And so that has a sort of a particular relationship between um, different populations. I think where I'm from, I think, yeah, you tip your sort of the similar typical stuff about like taxes. Um, you know, like if I got a free ride to university, I would, you know, uh, you know, you get that kind of stuff all the time, uh, like crime addiction, you know, and this, this doesn't come just from like the white publish. You see other minority groups who are, you know, they get right in, then they're on the anti-indigenous, uh, mm -hmm. racism as well. Sometimes even, you know, even more, even worse. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess that would probably be maybe similar to here, but yeah, I guess if you are around, if it's just more prominent, like when you go to the bus stop and you, you're like, oh, it's dangerous. Uh, right. You know, like you're, you know, people like, you know, here. Um, yeah. So I guess maybe if, if, if that isn't like as visible or as present in suburban Ontario, like, I don't know uh, right. if that's something that would exist in like Mississauga or something in the same way that exists in Surrey. So we're going to continue the discussion we've been having. Our Patreon supporters will get access to the second part of the discussion next week. To support the podcast and get access to exclusive content, go to patreon.com slash oatsforbreakfast and become a patron. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.